Uh, we're glad you're here, like I said. And a few things I want to say. We have been entering into a new series of this fall season. And we're doing two series in sort of a rotating on Sunday. So one Sunday we're going verse by verse, another Sunday we're doing topical. The topical series we kicked off last Sunday on hearing God. And there was a powerful message, please listen to it online, talking about opening this idea of how does God reveal God's self to us. And we're going to be building on that throughout this season leading into Advent and Christmas. The verse-by-verse series, we're picking up on one that we started last fall and last year in first, Second Corinthians, and now we're going to pick up the last half of Second Corinthians, and we're doing that. This is the second message in that series. And so, depending on how you're wired, some people really like, yeah, just lead me through the text, bring me a Bible study preacher, and myself or Josh or who's ever on will be going through this series together. Uh, and others of you are like, no, no, just give me a topic, give me something practical, that, that uh, give me the verses, give me the Christian reasoning around it, but give me a topic. But we're going to do both because I believe that you are bright, amazing, wonderful people and can handle that. Yes? Okay, all right. <laughs> uh, the lack of faith you have in one another is... Uh, what was Darth Vader's quote? I find your lack of faith disturbing, or something like that. Um, stand with me this morning one more time, if you're able to do so. We're going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and uh, we're going to read verses 2 through 16. A bit of a chunk, uh, but you... Oh, that's 1 Corinthians. We need 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, there we go. And we're going to read verses 2 to the end of the chapter. And then we're going to walk through it this morning and ask some questions of the text and what the text is asking of us. So Paul is writing to the church at Corinth here, probably the fourth writing that we have of him uh, that, we, that we believe he wrote, First and Second Corinthians, and there were two letters that were lost. He references them in this book. He says, make room for us in your hearts, verse 2. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have ruined no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. For I told you before, remember he's writing the church at Corinth, for I told you before that you are in our hearts so that we die together and live together with you. Verse 4, I have great confidence in you. I take great pride on your behalf. I am filled with encouragement. I am overflowing with joy in the midst of all our suffering. For even when we came into Macedonia, our body had no rest at all, but we were troubled in every way. Struggles from the outside, Fears from within, but God, who encourages the downhearted, encouraged us by the arrival of Titus. And we were encouraged not only by his arrival, but also by the encouragement you gave him, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your deep concern for me, so that I rejoiced more than ever. For even if I made you sad in my letter, I do not regret having written it. And even though I did regret it, For I see that my letter made you sad, though for only a short time. Verse 9. Now I rejoice, not because you were made sad or grief, but because you were made sad to the point of repentance. For you were made sad or grieved as God intended, so that you were not harmed in any way by us. Verse 10. For sadness or grief as intended by God produces a repentance that leads to salvation leaving no regret, but worldly sadness brings about death. Verse 11, for you see that this very thing, this sadness as God intended has produced in you what eagerness, what defense of yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what deep concern, what punishment in everything you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So then, 
Even though I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did wrong or on the account of the one who was wronged, but to reveal to you your eagerness on our behalf before God. Therefore, we have been encouraged. And in addition to our own encouragement, we rejoiced even more at the joy of Titus because all of you have been refreshed, have refreshed his spirit. For if I have boasted in him about anything concerning you, I have not been embarrassed by you, but just as everything is said to you is true, so our boasting to Titus about you has proved true as well. And the very last verses. And his affection for you is much greater when he remembers the obedience of you all and how you welcomed him with fear and trembling. And I rejoice in everything. I am fully confident in you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Lord, we come to you today and we wrestle with this text. We wrestle with what we've already experienced as we worship and enter into the play of the Holy Spirit, and as we pray together, as we eat together, as we celebrate together, we ask today that you'd continue to form us as a countercultural people within our city, that we might be a blessing and might point people towards that deepest identity in you and your love revealed particularly in Jesus. So continue to do your work today through the foolishness of preaching, I pray in Jesus' name. And if you're willing to say amen, please be seated this morning. This is quite a chunk of scripture, and there's a few key things I want to just draw today as we walk back through it. I want you to understand that Paul points out something about a letter that he has written to them. And we don't have this letter, but it's referenced in 2 Corinthians, a harsh letter regarding some situation in the church around those that may have called themselves super apostles, and they were directing them away from Jesus and away from the scandalous mercy in God revealed in the life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And in the middle of this passage, he talks about provoking sadness in them. Another translation of that is grief. Grief. And in this grief, uh, Paul tells us that there's two kinds of grief. There's a grief that leads to a positive change in life, and there's a grief that continues to enslave us and bind us. And so this morning, I want to talk about that grief, but I also want you to not miss, and this doesn't come out necessarily in, in, in the graphic you're looking at here, but there's also juxtaposed to grief, great joy as well in this passage. And you hear the emotions of Paul coming through in this passage strongly. He's affirming the embodiment. He's affirming feelings and emotions. He's affirming that God is at work in these things in our lives as well. So as we walk through this, oh, and one more thing I should point out before we just walk through the verses quickly today, is Paul talks about colleague in ministry, Titus. And how appropriate today, I get a new colleague in ministry. We're not going to call you Joshua Titus, but you know, you know. So Paul emphasizes this idea of, of, of collaborative leadership. He emphasizes this idea that we are in this together. Even though he is an apostle, he is raising up leaders across, this, across the ancient world in this time. And so we see Titus's work as well in that church and in the churches. So let's walk through this text this morning. The first thing, I just want to throw an outline on the screen so you don't lose hope and think he's going to take forever this morning. I know who you are. I've heard you tell me. Uh, here is the outline today. We're going to walk through this text. Um, again, the beginning is a plea for openness. I'm using uh, uh, George Guthrie's uh, outline in the Baker Exegetical Commentary today. A plea for openness is resumed in verses 2 through 4, which he says, open your hearts to us. We'll talk about that in a sec. And then Titus arriving in Macedonia, relaying to Paul the information about what has happened in the church at Corinth since the other two or three letters. 
He talks about the causes of discouragement and encouragement, grief and joy, we might say, the positive effects of Paul's harsh letter, and then finally Titus' joy in experiencing their ministry, uh, experiencing how that church blessed Titus and also uh, returned to their um, allegiance to Paul's teaching regarding Jesus. And so we see this movement in this chapter. This chapter picks up, by the way, from uh, chapter 2, right around verse 13. And then there's a break, and we went through that earlier in the year. And now he's picking back up sort of the travel log part of the letter, the travel journey and what's going on back and forth and sort of that framing of 2 Corinthians so again, let's look at these first few verses, verses 2 through 4. Make room in your hearts. Say it with me this morning. Make room in your hearts. Man, this is, this is such a beautiful phrase. I love this. Make room. Because they had previously decided they were going to judge and condemn Paul's teaching based on some false teachers that had come into the church. And he's saying they have made room. They have expanded their hearts again. They have restored relationship. And I love this language again because Paul is talking about this idea of how we have an emotional connection that we are called to have with one another. We have learned here again that there had been destructive choices that had been made in this church under the influence of those wanting to twist or change or deny the centricity of Jesus in what it means to be a church. And yet we have those that Paul had received eyewitness testimony of going all the way to Jesus, the living Christ. We're within that first generation. And Paul's vision experience of Christ Paul is coming here to say again, uh, hey, he's redirecting them with that letter that he had sent, that harsh letter. And he says, you've opened your hearts. What I had desired has happened. You have heard me. I have been heard and you have responded in a lovely way. I like how he uses this cadence here. You can almost hear him preaching. He says, we haven't mistreated. We haven't corrupted. We haven't taken advantage. He's probably paralleling what had happened with some of the false teachers How do you know the marks of good leadership? They don't mistreat people. What is a good church? Scott McKnight and Sarah Basinger talk about this in their book called Tove, after all these scandals in North America. What does goodness look like? Well, it doesn't mistreat people. It doesn't corrupt people. It doesn't take advantage. And Paul says, we have done none of those things. What does it mean to be a good pastor, Josh? It means some of this stuff this morning. I'm going to preach at Josh since he's right there, right? So... This is what the decisive opponents have done. This is what non-tov, non-goodness leadership does. Verse 3, Paul tells them that even though he confronted this distortion and those that were distorting, he has not kicked them out of his kind and good thoughts. He wants goodness to be restored and right relationship. He has gone to extreme lengths for them. He's risked telling the truth to those that may not want to hear it. And he's engaged, and he's still engaged emotionally with him. He doesn't just walk. Sometimes Christians get a little crazy. We, Jesus, when he sent out the 72, said, if they receive you, you'll go into their homes, and if they don't, shake the dust off their feet. Uh, Paul takes a long time before he gets to the shake the dust off the feet situation. Paul continues and continues and continues. How do you do that? I think it's because of the work of the Spirit. When we welcome the Holy Spirit that gives us that supernatural love that we go above and beyond in hopes that there is change. Yes, there's sometimes it's time to put a boundary in place, but Paul is sensing that it is not yet with them. He tells them to put a boundary in place with someone who is being destructive. I like how uh, Guthrie puts it. He's, again, this is encouraging. Paul, full of the Spirit, had challenges as well. Guthrie says, working with people in the cause of Christ has tremendous rewards great with great joy. But it can also be accompanied, and hear this, Joshua, it can also be accompanied by great occupational hazards. 
No, Canada does not have an occupational hazard list for the local church that I am aware of, other than working with hazardous chemicals, which I don't think we have any that I'm aware of. Uh, But maybe they should have this for those working with people. Occupational hazards such as stress, discouragement, and even depression. Guthrie goes on and says, For as a Christian ministers, we not only carry the weight of our own spiritual struggles and failures, but also work with spiritually dysfunctional people who at times kick us as we are trying to lead them towards growth. You might get kicked. Warning. Hopefully not literally, but metaphorically. So it continues on, verse 6, and he begins to transition here. He says, but, but God. I love this whenever we see that translation in English, but God. (laughs) It would have been over. I would have been left for dead. I would have given up. I would have shaken the dust off a long time ago. I would have said enough of this nonsense, but God is at work. He says there's an act of encouragement here. God encourages the downhearted. He encouraged us by the arrival of Titus. I love this. There's a direct encouragement, empowerment of the Holy Spirit that we as believers can access, that there is this sense of God's spirit. And I love this because it comes from the bottom up, directly empowerment of the Lord. But God encouraged us. And by the way, he put someone else on the path, Titus. I pray this morning that in our lives, we would be like Titus, one to another, as Titus encouraged Paul and as God encourages us. That sometimes we're ready to walk away, but then there's something that breaks through unexpectedly. There's someone that we don't have enough faith, but we borrow some of their faith, and there's encouragement breaking through. We see this, but God. Titus spread good gossip. Not all had totally made Paul an outcast. Not all had totally turned away, and some had turned back towards the affirmation of Jesus' centricity in their church. I could say a lot more about emotions and feelings. We use them interchangeably, but really emotions are what we experience in our body, right? And I'm um, quoting from psychology, psychologists here. Emotions are those things that we feel, and some of us have been taught to suppress and deny those emotions, but those emotions are telling us something. And Paul's letter here is full of emotion, and then he begins to name them. And when we name them, more particularly, we call them feelings. And sometimes our feelings... We don't have enough vocabulary, we don't have enough words to to properly name what we're encountering in our emotions, but that's the work of naming feelings, and that's something powerful. And I like that you see a lot of this going on in Paul's letters, and I want to say more about that, but not today, because of the sake of time. Note Titus, by the way, in verse 7, was a Gentile believer. We were encouraged not only by his arrival, but also by the encouragement you gave him. As he reported us to your longing, your mourning, your deep concern for me, and that I rejoiced evermore. I think it's important to understand that what the ministry of Paul and Titus also are in the ancient Roman world, Greco-Roman world. It is global. It is international. There are many cultures, many ethnicities, many backgrounds there. And think about our city in Vancouver. As we lean into this as a church full of people who are first, second, and third generation and a few of beyond uh, Canadians here, in some ways we are living and, and we can learn a lot from the New Testament church on what does it mean to submit to one another? What does it mean to learn from one another? And we do it in fits and starts. But we see this with Titus' ministry as well. Paul was, was a Jewish Jew all the way and Titus was a Gentile convert to, to Christianity, not to Judaism, to, to following Jesus. And so we see this as well in this unique thing that God is forming. Okay, let's get to the middle three, middle section of this letter, verses 8 through 13 this morning. If you're still with me, please say amen. Amen. All right. Woo, that was great. Woo, that was solid. What's going on here today? Guys are excited. You have a long weekend. Don't have to work tomorrow. I don't know. It's good. Good. 
Verse 8, for though I grieved you with my letter, I did not regret it. Okay, so Paul sent this harsh letter to the church at Corinth. And now he's having back and forth wrestling with what this letter did. He sent this letter, and he tells us that he was anxious about it, that he was worried about it. He didn't just, well, I'm going to tell them the truth and leave it at that. Like, he was emotionally invested in this letter that he sent that was a hard word that they needed to hear. And he said, I see that it caused you grief, but now only briefly. But he has not known that now for who knows how long, months and months and months. He didn't know what was going on with the letter And now he's relaying when he got the information about what happened and how they received his teaching and his correction and encouragement. And he said, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. The second movement in the second section of 2 Corinthians, he realizes that his letter really upset them. And he's emotionally aware as a leader. And he regretted it a bit at first. But he restated that because the sorrow Because the grief his letter produced in them brought changed, it also produced joy. Let us pause here for a moment, and when we talk about forgiveness and reconciliation and apology and confrontation, we want to do it in a Jesus-centered way. We want to do it in a love-centered way. And it is clear in Paul's writing, an earlier writing, and Paul's being there in person and helping start this church with the work of the Holy Spirit, that he was emotionally invested. Paul was not tweeting away from across the country or the continent or the world at them. Paul was engaged relationally. And when we read Paul in these harsh words and these letters, we need to remember that he's not posting this on TikTok. This is not an Instagram video. This is not, he is there. He's been invested relationally. There is this context, the closeness. And so he has earned a right to speak into their lives. And even if he has to say something hard, he's telling us that he was wrestling with this. That he was, he said, I regretted it for a season, but now I don't regret it because of what it has done. Which leads me to believe that had some of them or had the church not turned back towards this Jesus-centeredness and rejected some of the false teachings, that Paul would have continued to regret that he had to speak a word, but it did not result in the kind of transformation that he had prayed and hoped for. Think about that. There's a pain in ministry that you carry with you your whole life. And every one of us at some level is called to minister, not just Josh, not just me, but we're called to equip Ephesians for the saints, that's you, for the work of the ministry. Our ministry is equipping, our ministry is building up, our ministry is teaching and prayer, our ministry is discipling disciple makers who will make disciples, not to hoard it all. And we see this idea here that Paul is engaged with his church He loves them. He wants to see change. And if it doesn't happen, he spoke a hard word, and we know that he would carry that pain with him. That regret would not have gone away because he never would have heard the rest of that message. Sometimes life, and and I heard one old pastor, old pastors, I tell you what, I'm almost there. Not there yet, but I'm almost there. (laughs) Said something like, as you grow in pastoral ministry, it's learning to grieve your losses better. And I thought, ooh. And that language in Paul comes out again and again. You know, in that famous passage we like to quote, is it from Philippians? He talks about, or Ephesians, I, I can't even remember the reference right now. You know, forgetting what lies behind, pressing onward to what is head. And he says, I, I'm, I'm forgetting what I once was. And, and he names this whole thing, that I might be the righteousness of God in Christ. He says, I want to be like him in his death, that I might also attain to his resurrection. And that being with him in his death part is a real thing. And Paul is naming it here. Why would a church leader send a letter that produced grief? 
That's not how we're supposed to do church in these broken North American contexts, right? We're supposed to be all happy and who's the guy that has more teeth than humanly possible in America down in Texas? That guy, uh, you all know who I'm talking about, that pastor of a mega church, you know. It's always like positive and happy and joy, joy, joy and happy, happy, happy and all of that, you know. He, he, I'm not saying his name out loud. I was a chase. <laughs> Some of you. <laughs> that, uh, there's, there's a Singaporean variant of the same guy, too. Uh, something about a, an Egyptian prince or something. But I'll leave that name out. No. Why would a leader want to send a letter that produced grief? He wants them to know that there are behaviors that break down relationships and destroy. And when we become aware of these behaviors and what they do, we may grieve the impact that we had on others. And Paul says, my letter was productive because you began to grieve. You began to be aware of what following those teachings would do if it took you away from the centricity of Jesus and getting your identity and life rooted in the love of Jesus. You, you began to see the impact of behaviors that may destroy and, and, and diminish others, what we call sin. And he says this grief, when you became aware of it, then you began to grieve. And this is interesting about revivals in the church that oftentimes we don't recognize behaviors that are destructive. And sometimes pastors have been awful in trying to get you to that point in ways that didn't, you couldn't hear. But sometimes you become aware that I need to make a change in my trajectory and how I'm living. I need to be aware that this behavior is actually destructive to myself and to others. And when you begin to have an awareness about what you do with your words and your life and your physicality and how it impacts others, and if you see negative things, you may experience the emotion of grief. You may experience the sense of loss and damage, and you may attach all kinds of feeling words to that grief. But this is what happened to them. They became aware that what they were doing was destructive and destroying others and hurting themselves as well. And this is that godly grief that leads to motivation to change, to repentance, metanoia, to change direction. And Paul says his letter He has no regrets because it produced a godly kind of grief that results in motivation and, I would say, empowerment of the Holy Spirit to bring about change of direction. And here's the tricky thing, right? Like, sometimes we want somebody to wake up about their behaviors. And the temptation is to do a power over move and simply denounce, simply to tweet away, Paul could write this letter because he was there in context, in relationship. Paul had the relationship cards to write the harsh letter. Most of us don't have those cards to say those harsh words to someone, to call them to a radical change and name their behavior. In a way that they understand our love and care for them. And this is the problem the church gets into is when it launches missiles with no relationship. We shouldn't be launching missiles at all, but full stop. But this idea of our words and how we use them. They could hear Paul's word. They could hear what Paul said, and they could be awakened by Paul's, the Spirit of God at work in Paul and relationally in Paul and Paul's love and care for them. And they could actually hear what he said, and they began to make the choices. You know, sometimes families have to do interventions with people in addiction, that kind of thing, but that works, usually works better when there is actual relationship of love. There's other things in our lives that we need to learn from Paul's approach to this. 
For the grief as intended by God produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Remember salvation, we've, in evangelical church land, we've, we've taken a lot of power out of this word. But this word is not just about uh, admit that you're a sinner, believe that Jesus rose from the dead, confess your sins, and confess him as Lord. Salvation is certainly, that's part of it, but it's much bigger. It's about wholeness. It's about uh, shalom. For the, tying it back into the Hebrew scriptures, it's about wholeness and health and wellness and flourishing. And yes, Jesus is a source and the source of this sustained. And he said, leaving no regret, but worldly sadness brings about death. And I don't have time to unpack that idea of worldly sadness, but I'll give you a quote from early church father, John Chrysostom. He said, worldly sorrow is regret of the loss of money. Worldly sorrow is the regret of loss of reputation. Worldly sorrow is the regret of loss of friends. This kind of sorrow merely leads to greater harm. Because the regret is often a prelude or a thirst for revenge. Only sorrow for sin is truly profitable. St. John Chrysostom. So an authentic grief from awareness of loss leads to a new way of living. Do we want to see different outcomes in our relationships? Do we want to live in a new way? Paul invites us to welcome the convicting of the Holy Spirit in our lives. What are those behaviors? What are those things that are destroying and marring us and others? And when we are aware of them, it is proper to pause and to name them before the Lord. Lord, I confess this attitude, this behavior, this thing to you. And sometimes the Spirit will even give us a gift of extra grief where we let our emotions lead us into change. Sometimes we fear those emotions, but your emotions can actually lead you into change. And we welcome that work within us. And we hear the Spirit speaking to us in our body and in our mind. And opens us up to the proper Jesus love-centered drawing us into new things. A grief that produces repentance that leads to new circumstances. Okay, I got to keep moving here. All right, we're we're almost there. Everyone said amen. Come on now. Are you awake? Yes? Are you having fun? There's the Harry Leong's word. Are you having fun? Say yes. Okay, I don't know. Find fun in a very broad concept. You're not buried today. Are you having fun? Yes. Um, Foresee that this very thing, the sadness as God intended, has produced in you. And here's what happened as they responded to that awakening to destructive actions and thoughts and behaviors. He said, this is what happens when we turn away, when we let that emotional state lead us and empower us. He said, now it is produced in you eagerness a defense of yourself, indignation at injustice, alarm, longing, deep concern. In everything, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. And so here we begin to shift again. Frederica Matthews Green says this, repentance is the doorway to the spiritual life. It is the only way to begin. It is also the path itself. And it is the only way to continue becoming people of perpetual kingdom change, turning towards Christ. She goes on and says, anything else is foolishness and self-delusion. Only repentance is both brute, honest enough and joyous enough to bring us all the way home. But how repentance could be either joyous or vibrantly true is a foreign idea to most of us. And yet we hear that embracing truth, embracing truth brings life even if it hurts initially. We've used the example before of whether you're training 
I follow a guy who bikes all the time. I still don't understand cyclists and marathon runners. No offense if you're one of them in this room today. I just, it looks, I man, they don't look happy on their faces ever, but... But I'm told the endorphins or whatever, the, I forget the, the right chemical, you know, after there does come and there is change in the body and there's endurance. But there is pain at first, but that pain brings about change. There's good pain and there's bad pain. Paul talks about godly grief, good pain versus bad pain, worldly grief. That which produces something in us that moves us forward. Okay, the last few verses here. As we get to the very end here, verses 13b through 16, in addition to our own consolation, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his mind had been set at rest by you all. Paul had raised up Titus, discipled Titus, and Titus experienced a good thing from the church. My hope is, this is like a really rough sort of uh, uh, analogical comparison here, is that as we bring Josh on board, that he experiences joy and goodness in our church from us as well. And we experience this. And he says this, Paul goes on and says, because his mind had been set at rest for you, for I had been somewhat boastful about you to him. I've been a lot boastful about Pilgrim to, to Josh, by the way. Um, I was at a pastor's conference this past week in, in Chicago with NAB church planters, revitalizers, and uh, Scott McKnight, great stuff. And uh, man, I boasted about you guys. I talked about Pilgrim being this awesome church in South Vancouver, man, doing kingdom stuff, opening our hearts to one another and the Lord and our community. Oh man, I just like, I did like really bad pastor bragging on you guys. So my plea to you is please live up to that. Okay. <laughs> For if I've been somewhat boastful about you to him, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you said about you was true, so our boasting to Titus has proved true as well. There is, by the way, a proper way of confidence that's okay. It's okay to celebrate good things. It's okay to say, yes, thank you. It's good to receive those things. Sometimes we've been taught, again, to deny those emotions of victory and goodness. We need those as well. And he says, so Titus proved true as well, and his heart goes out all the more to you as he remembers the obedience of all of you and how you welcomed him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. This is the third movement in this three-part section here, the third pericope here. And I just want to say this. So Paul talks about grief, different kinds of grief, and we know Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. I was going to spend a whole section on that. I don't have time today, but we can spend more time on grief and revisit this in terms of there is sort of that initial shock. There's about five stages, some say seven stages of grief. But when we experience an awakening to something, a loss, grief is about loss, and um, whether it's loss of what losses we are aware of that we've inflicted on others through sinfulness or loss of losing a loved one through death, this idea of losses that we've inflicted or losses that have, we've received unexpectedly. Um, but Paul spends a lot of time talking about that there is a kingdom place for grief and how we actually grow, that grief and loss are how we, uh, to use Scazzaro's words, we expand our souls. But on the flip side, there is joy to be received. And if we are willing to enter into those cycles of repentance and grief and turning, we also then open ourselves to receive the unexpected gift of new life and joy as a new circumstance opens before us. As we grieve and loss and let go of our destructive patterns or those of others and set up boundaries, then we can open ourselves to receive the goodness and new life that God comes flushed, God brings, come rushing into that void that we have, we have intentionally entered into. 
And so this third movement, we see this overwhelming sense of joy of how their response to being uh, called truth and love has now opened them up for joy. And Paul is experiencing joy and Titus is experiencing this encouragement and they are being encouraged and the church is moving forward in the thing it's called to be an alternative city within the city for the blessing of the world and the nations and working of salvation and the shalom of Jesus. And so Paul was glad for his ministry friend. Paul boasted in him, he boasted in them, and he was able to celebrate that God is at work. And this thing that we've been talking about, this death and resurrection, this different way of being human has been evidenced amongst them and is real and tangible, and they can rejoice in that. I believe Christians ought to fully enter into the fullness of our emotions and our feelings, in our bodies and our minds. And that our worship should be an expression of all of those things, We should have time for lament, but also joy. That when we sing, we are singing people. Did you know that? That Christians are a singing people? Find your voice, even if it's weak, even if it's frail, even if it's trembling, even if it's off key. And if you really have a gift of singing, really use that gift. Because you need to drown out the rest of us. All right. But, no, I'm just kidding. No, it's horrible. Jesus, help him. Uh, But this idea of entering into this joy, and we see Paul just letting loose here with this. Because imagine the tension that he's lived with. And now the testimony of God's goodness coming through just leaps out. This passage is not about some cheap forgive and forget nonsense. This is about engaging with darkness and coming through to the other side. And he'll have more to say about this in the last part of Corinthians, which I love. Last part of 2 Corinthians. There's some, just some real wonderful zingers from Paul in there. They've made some bad choices. They've been sinful towards him and towards one another and towards themselves. But... They have turned and they've walked in grace and new life has rushed in. And he says this, I rejoice because in everything I am fully confident in you, verse 16. My prayer is that this church would be a place where we see life change, where we lean into these things in a Jesus-centered, love-driven way. And that we can say of one another, I am fully confident in you. Paul says elsewhere that he, meaning God, Jesus, who began a good work in you is faithful and he will do it. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. It's not over until the king comes again. And so this morning in this time and place, there may be something in your life that you need to grieve. And you have a choice. You can grieve it in a way that opens you up to newness of life of the Spirit, or you can grieve it in a way that is about revenge and darkness and turning inward on yourself even more. You can do it in a way that brings heaven on earth, or you can do it in a way that brings hell on earth within you. And so this morning, I invite you, beloved family of God, will you welcome this path of repentance that Frederica Matthew Green speaks of? that you might receive new life and joy. This morning I summarize all of this in the final replay here. I want to remind you again, and worship team, you can come up during this moment if you're ready. I want to remind you again that there is a range of emotions and feelings affirmed here. N.T. Wright, Bishop Wright says this, having no anxiety for Paul meant taking every day's anxieties and with Huge struggle and effort, dumping them on God in whom he doggedly believed. Paul says, do not be anxious while he expresses anxiety 
he's continually expressing that to God. How does he deal with anxiety? He expresses it again and again and again. And we're reminded that God wants to comfort us. We're also reminded in the sort of recap replay here that the real repentance brings joy and liberation. And true confrontation takes courage and a love relationship. It is not okay to simply be zinging out our truth at everybody randomly. If we are formed by Christ, we ask, how does our emotional state, how, how can we speak truth in love to someone with a desire that it brings about change? Paul was deeply concerned. He did not just fire off a letter. He was dealing with, I regret it. I'm, I'm anxious about this. I have all this. And we see this in Paul's, that is the heart that cares for someone else. If you can't have that kind of follow-through, then you shouldn't be speaking truth to anybody about anything until you care for them first, full stop, as Jesus does you. And finally, there is a good grief to pursue, an awakening and a letting go of that which destroys. I'm reminded of the psalm, and there are worship songs and worship words around this too. I like in Psalm 30, talking about the people wrestling with all the stuff happening to them. It says, weeping may remain for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And we enter into this in Psalm 50, 51, and we have David's confession talking about what he has done to break and destroy and mar. And he enters into that as well. So there's language that we can borrow from Hebrew Bible and the New Testament around this as well. So this morning, would you stand with me if you're able to do so, and let's pray. And I think uh, we were going to do communion. We've been doing communion regularly, and we've been also sort of, we're Baptists, so we can be pragmatic. Given that we have potluck, um, we'll, well, I think we're going to punt on communion, if that's all right. I, I, I submit to you, my associate pastor, our associate pastor, Josh, uh, <laughs> uh, on the fly. Although I don't think he would feel confident to say no one month in, but, you know, <laughs> to be continued. So, Lord, we come before you today, and we thank you for your goodness. And, Lord, I pray today that we would be people who can enter into godly grief over the destructiveness in our lives, our words, our attitudes, and others as well. And that we would receive the gift of sorrow that leads to change, that leads to an opening of our hearts again to your goodness and your love, and to seeing others as you see them. And so, Lord, we thank you that you are at work through the word in this place today. And God, we also want to acknowledge the call to be in ministry one to another. And the role of leadership is to equip and to empower and sometimes to speak words that aren't all smiles and roses. But, Lord, that good leadership is also rooted and grounded in genuine care and authenticity and love. And God, in this church, in this community in South Van, may we be known as a community centered on you of outrageous love. Because Jesus, I know that's what changes trajectories in lives and hearts. And then may we also learn from this text that we can receive encouragement directly from you and one another and be people who experience the joy of that as well. This full-orbed experience of humanity that we can enter into more freely when our groundedness is in saying yes to a God who gets particular in love. And for the person here today that may be ready to take their next step, that may be saying, so what does this mean for me? It may mean that grieving. It may mean that naming. It may mean that rejoicing or being an encourager. But it may also mean saying yes to Jesus for the first time. For the person who is here today and you have been wrestling with, how do I do that? It's super simple. 
you can begin by opening your heart towards this God who will not force himself, but says, will you welcome me into your heart and mind? Use that holy imagination and say, Jesus, come and dwell in me by your spirit. Let your spirit be a part of me. And he says, if you do that, he will gladly enter in. And it's a bit of a spiritual thing. It's a bit of a faith thing as well. You're reaching out into maybe muscles that you've never used before. But as you do that, you begin to encounter him through the Bible, through the church, through the spirit and creation. But he calls us into community to learn from one another and ultimately to be this place, this laboratory of love. So if you want more details on that, you can talk to me afterwards or any one of our leaders and be more than happy to pray with you as well. So Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.